as we come to this passage of scripture that uh, Sam read for us in John chapter 17, it's actually a, a larger passage which is called the High Priestly Prayer, and there's so much in it, we're going to just focus on a few of the verses but give you a bit of an overview. But I want to ask you a question, and, and uh, it kind of comes from a, a film that was, has been very popular. Now, for some of the younger generation, it's an old film, but for some of us, uh, I don't know if there is such a thing as an old film anymore, because everything a young person says is an old film. I said, well, wait a minute, that was just not long ago. And the film was Forrest Gump. Now, Forrest Gump's a funny film. It's a unique uh, film where this person uh, kind of ambles through history and is involved in history. But at one point, he asks a question of his mother. And, he, and this is his question. He asks her, Mama, what is my destiny? And I really think when he was asking that question, he was actually asking this question. What is my purpose? What does my life mean? Why am I here? What am I supposed to be doing? What is my destiny? And actually, in asking that question, I think it's the question all of us ask at some time. In fact, not only do we ask it, I think we live it, and even if we don't ask it verbally, consciously, there's a subconscious sense that we want to know why we're here. Where is the larger purpose for my existence? Why am I here? And so we ask those kind of questions to know more. There's a longing in our soul that we want to know. What is the overarching reason for my existence? That sense of meaning. And so we come to this, and, and are, you know, the question is, are we just going through the motions? Are we kind of a cog in a wheel? And what's, a, what's the reason for our existence and the answer is, there is a purpose. Yes, there is a wonderful purpose. You've been singing your purpose today. You have bringing glory to the name of Jesus Christ, and that ultimately is your purpose. That's kind of the easy answer for us as Christians to know that we are here to bring glory to his name. But this prayer in John 17 also reveals something for us more specifically of how that manifests itself as Jesus prays for his disciples as he's getting ready to go to the cross, go to the tomb, and then be raised and then exalted. And it's this, that Jesus Christ has left us here for a reason, to bring glory to himself. I say this a lot, this statement a lot, and, and I, because it always has been a question for me, and I don't know where I heard it first, but it's this question. Where would you worship God better? Here or in heaven? Think about it. You'll be perfect in heaven. You're not perfect here. Where would you worship God better? In the presence of God where you can see him or right here? Of course, heaven. I mean, ultimately, we're going to spend eternity in heaven worshiping God, right? If, are, you, are you with me on this? Okay, it's okay to respond or smile or, you know, or whatever. If you take out your hanky and run the aisles, we'll, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll work with that too. But here's the thing. If I can worship better in heaven, and if I, can, if I can bring glory to God better in heaven, and if I can serve God better in heaven, because I will be perfect, I'll be with him face to face, and I'll spend eternity doing that, why did he leave me here after I got, came to Christ? 
Why am I still here? And there's a reason why you're still here. Why did he leave when Jesus was exalted? Why didn't he just kind of take, you know, disciples? Is it time now? Are you coming into your kingdom? Is it going to be heaven on earth now? And he says, no, I'm going. You're left here with a reason, to be my witnesses. So there is a reason for you to be left here. And it's to bring glory to my name. And then he prays for them in more detail of what that means. And when he prays for them, he directs them into his purpose for us, the body of Christ. We live here to reveal Jesus. Anything more or less would only complicate things. Anything to try to explain it in in a more complex way only gets in the way of the simple truth that your existence here has an overarching purpose is to reveal the wonders and the glory of your Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. And so the way we live, the way we act, the way we think, the way we relate, all should reveal Jesus. Now, like I said, this is a high priestly prayer, John 17. It's at that moment, at the end of the upper room discourse, before he was leaving to go to the Garden of Gethsemane. So it was that night when his last meeting with the disciples, and at the very end of the meeting, he prays before he goes to the Garden to pray, as he was getting ready to be arrested and then tried and then crucified. So that's in that moment. And so here's his kind of this, this lofty, wonderful prayer. It's intimate. It's intercession for his followers. The first six verses, he's praising the Father. He affirms the purpose in his return to the Father. He's requesting glory so he can give back glory. He's actually asking that he might glorify the Father. And we know in his mind, it is his sacrifice on the cross and his resurrection. He gives us a a simple definition of what eternal life is, is knowing God and knowing Jesus in verse 3. It is a progressive, ongoing relationship by the tense of the verb and the language of the original language. Observe his description of returning to the Father in verse 5. Looking back, it says this, And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Verse 24, he talks about returning to the Father. And it's a reminder to us of the great love of Jesus for us that what he left in heaven to come to save us. The second person of the Trinity came to this earth as a babe in a manger, we talk about it at Christmas, sometimes we forget to talk about it year-round, is the fact that he came to incarnate the presence of God in human flesh and to ultimately die on the cross for us. He left glory to come to this earth because he loves you and me. And so we read this. In verse 9 through 12, he, he, his prayer narrows, not for the world he prays, you know, as we read this, it's wonderful. He says, I'm not praying, verse 9, I pray for them. Talking about his disciples who God has given him. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. So he's, his prayer focus narrows. He's praying for those he's leaving in the world. He's praying for those he's leaving and entrusting with the gospel message and the gospel life. He had guarded them, it says. He had taught them. He had protected them. They were filled with his joy. 
And by the way, this narrowing is significant. Jesus would affirm and, 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 and protect and pray for all those following his teaching and whom they would disciple. In fact, if you look down in verse 20, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. By the way, who are those who believe in him through their message? Who is that? Yeah, it's all of us. So at that moment, before he goes to the cross, he's praying for his disciples, but he's praying for us right there. And so we come. His intercession, his love, his care. And he reveals his message as he narrows his prayer, for, especially for those disciples just in front of him. They're in the upper room. And those who, who are connected to him at that point. If you want to save the world, there's a lesson. It's a great lesson. If you want to save the world, you begin with a few. With that handful of disciples, God would transform this world. We are here because of that. Millions of people who have followed Jesus Christ and are following Jesus Christ around the world of every tongue, tribe, and nation. And he prayed for the original core that would start that. So always remember this, it doesn't take a crowd to reach the world, it just takes a few inhabited by the power of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus reveals his method in the prayer, but he also does something else. He, he says, I am leaving them to represent me. They have my purpose, verse 18, and you read that and, and here's what it says for us. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world, same way. For them I sanctify myself, and they too may be sanctified. So we want to talk about what does it mean for us to be sent? What does it mean as he's praying? What does it mean for us to live distinctly in a way that reveals Jesus? To take the risk to live on mission and do what he wants us to do. So number one, it does mean that we have to live distinctively to reveal Jesus. We have to live differently to reveal him. You don't belong here. What he's saying about these disciples, they are not of this world. Verse 14 talks about this. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they, have not, they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. They're part of me. We don't belong here in the sense of the belonging of the world and belonging to the world. Now, what does it not mean? What it doesn't mean if we say we do not belong here, it doesn't mean isolation. God does not want us to go into some kind of isolation from the world. To be living in a cocoon, kind of. To be behind the four walls of the church or our homes, hoping for the soon return of Christ, but kind of hiding out. So it's not isolation or insulation. He don't, doesn't want us to be here in hiding. He wants to be living, us to be living for the glory of God. Sometimes I think Christians think that, that we have a fortress mentality. The world is bad, God is good, we just need to hide out and hold on until he comes. Just hang on to Jesus and don't get involved because it may taint you. And in fact, that was the mentality of the old. Of the old mentality sometimes, the old way of thinking is this separation, but not, uh, not evangelization, not engagement. And so we think about that, it's not that. It's not irritation either. We're not here to be an irritation. Now sometimes Christians can be irritating, but they shouldn't do it on purpose. If you're thinking of it, an individual comes to mind, please don't shout out their names, okay? 
I think there are some Christians that think being distinctive means being weird or irritating just to do it. It's like the guy I knew, and, and if you have this t-shirt, please forgive me, there was a guy in one of my churches when I was pastoring that had a t-shirt that had Yosemite Sam on the front, and he had two guns in his hand, and he said, turn or burn. I think for him that was evangelism, you know, you know go around. Okay, well, you know, that... That may, you know, that was winsome. You know, that was uh, helpful. Now, I may start some conversations, but I, I have a feeling it would be more repelling than attracting or more connecting. You see, you see it's, it, it, Jesus is not never artificial. He never tried to be weird to be weird. He tried, he was different because he had a different set of values. He had a different purpose. He didn't create unnecessary barriers. The gospel is enough of a barrier. It says in 1 Peter chapter 2, it's a, a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. People are going to stumble on this gospel of I'm a sinner and I need a savior. They're going to stumble on the fact that the Savior died on the cross and was buried in a tomb. They're going to stumble on that. And it's going to be really odd to them that someone who was dead is alive now and raised to, to, to life until they begin to understand what it means. So you don't have to make it weird. But you have to make it real in your life. It's not immersion or imitation of the culture either. Sometimes the, we go the opposite direction. If we just imitate the world and there's no distinctiveness, they'll accept us. They'll love us because we're just like everybody else. And we are just like everybody else. We're human beings. But the amazing thing is that we've been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ and we belong to Jesus. And that should make a difference. So we don't adopt the values and the principles of the world. We don't pursue the things the world pursues as our ultimate purpose. We pursue the glory of Jesus Christ. The church today and believers alike are captivated by a culture of belonging, and sometimes we replace the idea of relevance as mere just accommodation. And we have to be careful. The only hope for people to see Jesus is for us to be counter to culture, to be like Jesus. To be in and of the world is not the answer, but to be in and not of the world is the answer. We offer no hope if we're not different. We offer no hope if we don't have hope. People in the world have no hope. There are people there without hope that are just trying to get through life. But here's these, this group of people walking around who are hopeful even in the darkest times who deal with the cha same challenges of life they deal, whether it's economic or whether it's sickness or anything like that, and yet they deal with it by turning to God and praying and hoping and trusting and continuing. And so for people to see Jesus, they have to see what it means to live differently. There's another film that I really loved. It was Chariots of Fire. Now, that is an old film in one sense. And it was a wonderful story of Eric Little, the, the, the uh, British Olympic, Scottish actually, but from Great Britain, uh, Olympic runner who, who uh, won the day. But remember the phrase from some of the phrases, and it's been used as an illustration a million times by pastors, but he made a statement to his sister when she thought running was not the right thing to do. And he says, when I run, I feel, the, I feel God's pleasure. 
And the reality was that he never compromised his principles when he ran, but he ran and he ran to win. But what, he didn't run to win to win for the same reason everybody else was running. Because, but he ran because he ran to be his, the best runner he could be that God had made him to bring glory to his Savior. And by that, people saw it and saw his choices. And some persecuted him, some uh, ridiculed him, but some actually looked at that and it drew them closer to Jesus. The interesting thing for Eric is running wasn't everything to his life because he would eventually go as a missionary. And it was during the time that World War II would come and he was taken into a prisoner of war camp out of his missionary work, and he would die there. Why? Because his life was not running. His life was Jesus. My point being is we live in a world where you have been given gifts and abilities, and you've given a life, and it's unique, and you may not be an Olympic runner. You don't have to be. All you have to do is be you, but be you living distinctly with a purpose that I do this to bring glory to Jesus. So we offer hope. We offer hope to a world that is in a downward spiral of sin's pursuits, of captivating and degrading and pleasurable traps. And if we are trapped, then we offer no hope, so we seek freedom in Christ so that we can be set free. Just recently we watched as a a young soccer team in Thailand was in a cave, trapped, and the whole world watched. We even saw one of the rescuers give his life as it illustrates for us that Jesus was willing to give his life for us. But you know what gave the most hope to the, as they were in the rescue process to those children who remained in the cave was the fact that there were classmates of theirs, soccer team members of theirs, who had been rescued from the cave. You know what the greatest hope is for the world today? Is not perfect Christians, but rescued Christians. Not Christians who have it all together, but Christians who are going through life on this journey, living for the glory of God, who've come from being trapped and now have been set free. Which means that we need to seek freedom in Christ. We should not remain as we are, but we want transformation and long for it. And then it's insightful, it's intentional. We have a sense that we know what's behind this world. The evil principles of this world and where it leads, we know it because Jesus has revealed it. And intentionally, we we, we live a life that recognizes my neighbor and we we are willing to reach out to our neighbor. So yes, live distinctly. Now, Real quickly, there are two main reasons that allow us to do this in this passage of Scripture. Our distinctiveness manifests itself in two ways. Number one, you belong to Him. You belong to Jesus. And you know that. These are mine. You have given the, he's saying about his disciples, they are mine. And this next, the next generation to follow them are mine. They belong to me. I have bought them with a price. Know that you belong to Jesus and develop a life of closeness to Him. They are mine. Knowing this makes all the difference in our attitude. Your sense of peace, your sense of security, your sense of well-being. 
Verse 9 and 10, I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world. You've given them to me. Verse 10, all I have is yours and all you have is mine and glory has come to me through them. And so he's praying to the Father. Do you think God's going to answer the prayers of his Father? The prayers to his Father? Do you think Father's going to ask the prayers of his Son? Actually, is the way I should say it. Of course. And so he is praying for protection. You know where the safest place to be? The safest place to be is belonging and close to Jesus. If you want to feel secure in Christ, get close to Jesus. If you want to feel allow distance to happen in your life from Jesus, you will feel insecure. You will question things. Satan will insinuate doubts in your life about your identity in Christ. But if you come to Him, if you spend time with Him, if you regularly think about Him and worship Him and read about Him, and long for Him in prayer, you will feel close and secure. It's the safest place to be in a hostile environment, to have fellowship with Jesus. I've noticed this with little children, with our grandchildren, that uh, sometimes when they, they like to sleep at night, like we, were, we just went on vacation and we took our two grandkids with us, I learned another lesson, lesson for the day. There's a reason why 60-year-olds don't have children. They have grandchildren is so that they can return them to their parents and they can go rest for a few days. But we had Emily and Oliver for a whole week and, and it was a wonderful time. We took them on vacation. And, but I remember there was one moment where um, uh, Dale was, uh, had laid down and Emily was lay, laying next to her and Oliver was laying on the other side because they had made this little fork thing that they wanted their grandma to be there in the middle and somehow I escaped this so I could take a picture or something I don't know but Emily knew that sometime in the night Grandma Dale may get up and move to a more comfortable location than sandwiched between a six-year-old and a three-year-old and it's like she looked at her and she says Grandma are you gonna be here when I wake up not exact words but something like that more in a three and a half year old's way and so Grandma Dale had to stay there and make keep her promise I woke up the next morning and I found her in another bed, but Emily was with her. <laughs> so, when you're close, you feel secure. When, you, when you're next to, I think there's some reason why when we're sleeping with our, our grandkids, they kind of start pushing us out of bed because they're getting closer and closer and closer, and we're getting closer to the edge, you know. But the point being is I think there's a principle there of how I feel and how I emotionally feel connected when I'm close and there's an intimate relationship with Jesus. See, we rest in belonging. And we, then when we have that belonging, we rise secure in Christ. And so we belong to Jesus. The enemy would insinuate doubt, but in closeness, in prayer, in the reading of the word, in, in meditating upon him, in worship, we find that safety and security that knowing it we also understand that belonging to jesus means that we receive his word verse 17 look there with me for a moment it says in verse 17 sanctify them by the truth your word is truth and in that little simple phrase sanctify them make them holy that's what sanctify means set them apart for me make them sacred make them holy transform them by the truth thy word is truth 
shows the power of the Word of God to make us holy, to make us His. Now, when you think of holiness, what do you think of? Well, a lot of times we've been grown up with the idea that holiness is an obligation. It's a negative. It's an, a, a, kind of an, an, an aesthetic lifestyle, a life a style of doing without. When we think of holy, we think of the things we don't do. We don't think of the things we do do. We don't think of protection. We think of, okay, I'm going to be holy and I'm going to be persecuted. Or I'm going to be holy and it's going to be hard. But what if we thought of what holiness really means? Certainly a holy man or a holy woman is going to be a person who is different. And and the world will reject and persecute at times. But there's so much more to being holy in Christ, to being set apart. Holiness is the safe place. Being holy is being set apart, belonging to Him, being His and no one else's. It means in that place that He invigorates us with His presence. He focuses our life and purpose unto Him. Holiness is something we run to, we don't run from. It is safety. It is pleasing Him. It is that. And it comes by the Word of God. Sanctify them in the truth. Thy Word is truth. It actually works. We look in the Bible. It has the answers. And knowing those answers begins to transform us. But it's not just knowing the facts. It's not just knowing a list of things that we know to be true, which are truth. But it's the effect of the Word upon us. We read in, in Romans 12, 1, it says, be, and 2, it says, be, you know, present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How do you think our minds get renewed? By the Word of God. It affects us. It begins to change us. We soak in it. It transforms our understanding. So reading the Bible is not about gaining information, it's about gaining transformation. It begins to affect the way you think. It makes you more like Jesus because you're opened it and you're listening and you're aware of His presence that this is a living message to you. That's why we need to be regularly, daily in the Word of God. Even if you get version on your smartphone, and you get the verse of the day popping up in the morning, and you read that verse, and, and, you, and, you, and you soak in it a little bit. Even if that's where you begin, that's a wonderful, easy way to do it. Maybe another way is you read the verse, but then it says you can read the full chapter, and you say, I want to know what's around this verse, and you read the whole chapter, and you soak in it, and you find God and, and how He's moving in this, and what He's asking you to do, and you listen Because every verse point in the Bible points to Jesus. It's all about Him. It's all about His love. It's all about God's sending. It's all about hope in a hopeless world. You see, if we're going to offer hope to the hopeless, life to the lifeless, healing to the broken, comfort to the sorrowing, a father to the fatherless, an unchanging anchor to people surrounded in a sea of change, Jesus is the answer. And we need to know Him. And not just about Him. We need to know Him. And that's why your grace story, the story of how He's worked in your life is so important. How you've seen the touch of God on your life, the forgiveness, the grace when you first came to Him, but what happened last week and the week before as you've walked with Him. 
that you can say, I saw God's hand in the way he answered a prayer or directed me in the way he, he moved in my life. I saw how he sustained me through this difficulty that we were going through, through this challenge that was happening. He was sustaining me. People need to see that in you. They need to see you pray. They need to see you look up to him. They need to hear you give glory to his name. So that our grace story is interactive. It's not just a regurgitation of truth. It's actually our interaction with the truth. Do you have a grace story? Well, if you're a Christian, you have a grace story. You didn't get here by yourself. I don't think so. God's at work in your life, isn't he? Ask yourself that question. Is God at work in my life? Answer it. Is he at work in your life? He better be. If he is not, then you better get on your knees and say, God, be at work in my life. Let me see it. I want to see the hand of God moving on me and affecting me. I've been discouraged lately. I need your hope. My identity has become untethered from my belonging to you. Retether me. Help me find that. Help me find people around me to help me with that. Which leads me to my last point, and that's this. It happens when we belong to Jesus, but we also belong to each other. We're a part of a community. Jesus is praying this prayer for his disciples, but oftentimes people don't cooperate with his prayers. Friends, I'm calling you to cooperate with the prayer of God, the, the prayer of your Savior, and begin to put on what he has made you and apply what he has made you. Receive the grace and the, and the belonging that he has. Don't fight the intercession. Join the intercession. So we belong to him. We belong to each other. Real quickly, here's, here's what that means. We don't do community well in church in this culture. There's more divisions. There's more lack of unity out there in the world today. And by the way, unity displays glory, division clouds over glory. We dabble in community, we consume community because we're basically consumers in this culture, but we don't always experience it. Now, I don't think that's true across the board, so praise God when we see community happen here, and I think we see it. But here's the thing. I've seen, I, as district superintendent, I've I just seen some weird stuff in church. I've seen people... And, and, and this is not about this church. I was in a church one time where uh, they were having a difficulty with their pastor, and, and, and they had been through two or three pastors over the years of 30 years, and pastors had come, pastors had gone. But because of this one situation, a group of people who had been there for 30 years with the same group of people had decided to, well, they couldn't take it. They're leaving. And I thought about it for a minute. And it wasn't about them leaving the, the pastor, but it was about them leaving people they had worshipped with for 30 years that were a part of their family and that they would pray for and pray with and go through all these agonies. And I said, there's got to be more to this community thing. There's, there certainly is a safety in community. We are not alone. We, we pray for one another. We support one another. Jesus lived in community. By the way, the high priestly prayer, a lot of it, if you look, kind of the underlying foundations is a trinity. I am in you, Father. You are in me. May they be one with us as we are one. We see that in Jesus' life. He displayed community. 
Jesus alone, time with the Father, was his resource. They lived, in, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit lived in community. Look at the baptism of Jesus. The Father said, this is my beloved Son in whom I will please. The Holy Spirit comes in the form of a dove. The Trinity is there, all three together, living in harmony and community and empowerment. And he's modeling for us that we were never intended to do this alone. Our protection is our unity. Our division is our defeat. If we fight, we falter. If we unite, we stand together. It seems this is the prayer. Verse 21 and, and beyond is talking about, may they be one so that people will know that, I, that you sent me. May there, the transformation of forgiveness and grace that puts sinful human beings sanctified by the word of God in the same place, worshiping God for the same glory, different people together in community is a revelation to the whole world that Jesus is Lord. So the visibility of the community, the gospel works, it transforms, it enables God's glory to manifest itself. The sin nature divides. We are naturally, humanly selfish. Oftentimes when we don't get what we want, we want revenge. But when Jesus transforms us, something changes, the Spirit leads, we bear fruit. Prayer is answered. We end up preferring others over ourselves. We don't argue about who's the greatest in the church. We serve like we're the least. And everybody gets served. We don't fight over the style of worship. We just worship. We don't fight over versions of the Bible. We just read it. We don't fight over how we dress at church. We just come. We do not fight over getting our way. We fight in agonizing intercession to know the will of God together. We don't fight with the Baptist over the 13.9% people who attend evangelical churches in the state of Florida on any given Sunday competing for our market share. I think some churches out the, some of the churches out there are designed to compete for the traveling Christians. But what do we fight for? Or who do we fight with? In the power of the Holy Spirit, we fight with the devil for the 85% of the people in the state of Florida who are lost and far from God, who do not attend an evangelical, gospel-centered church. And we hear about people coming to faith, whether it's in our church or in others, we, in people, where people are coming and lostness is reduced. We celebrate what's going on in the kingdom of God. Why? That the world will know and believe that the gospel, believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It will not happen in the abstract, but in communities here and around the world. It will happen when a few churches are actually banding together to reach people with the gospel. I read a story about one church in, three churches in Chicago that got together and they said, we want to reach our neighborhoods. Well, we have people in some neighborhoods from my church and the other denomination and the other denomination, and they said, you know what, why don't we do this? Why don't we form small groups to reach the neighborhood that are not specific to a church, but it could be any one of our three churches. So they actually formed inter-church small groups in the neighborhood to reach the neighborhood. So you had the Baptists and the Methodists and the Lutheran all together in one place. Praying together. Isn't that amazing? Why? Because it's about the mission God has called us to. So it's worth the risk, that conversation, to cross the street or to cross an ocean or to initiate contact. 
To lead someone to Jesus means that we allow them to see Jesus in us and then we point toward Him. They see you praying and serving and caring. It means that, as our pastor Jesse has reminded us, that we think about three people in our lives. People who are far from God, but close to you. And that you're praying for, for opportunity. Three people. I'd like you to do something just in response. Just take out your card for a moment. Your bulletin or whatever, your connect card or whatever this is called. What is this called? Sam, what is this called? Oh, bulletin, okay. That's fine, I just, I didn't know, I wanted to be accurate. I'd like you to take it out. If you have a pen, I want you to do this or a pencil. Or if you want to plug this into your smartphone or whatever you want to do. I'd like you to bow your head just for a moment. Just for a moment. Holy Spirit, come. I want you to think of one person far from God but close to you. And I'd like you to write their name there, their first name. You don't have to put their last if you don't want to, but their first. Just the the name that the Holy Spirit brings to mind. Holy Spirit, come. Now, Lord, I just pray that you begin to take that name and add two more names to that. So there are three. And may today you continue, or in for some cases, some of us begin to sow the seed of our ultimate purpose to bring glory and to reveal Jesus to these people. May we do it in the way we live and the way we love. May we do it in the way we hope and the, may we, the way we suffer. May we do it in the way that we relate to other people, the choices we make and our sense of who we are in Christ. May they see Jesus. May the name of the person I put on here, may he see Jesus in me. And then, Lord, I just pray for opportunities. Lord, you left us here for a reason. You you left me here for a reason. And that's to be light and darkness. Lord, every one of us in this room are here for a reason. To bring glory to your name. To reveal Jesus to a lost world. Lord, do this, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.